Hello, everybody, and welcome to season two of the How's My Hand Path podcast. This week on the show, we have my good buddy named Taylor Crosby. Uh, for those of you who don't know Taylor, he is a wonderful coach out of Georgia who uh, spends quite a bit of time working with a lot of college kids and a lot of juniors. And we talk about just that in this episode, you know, a lot about um, how coaching differs from one to the next and, you know, where he's learned all his information and obviously the power of social media, which is something that I think is very important for an up and coming coach to learn about. So this is a really good episode. So stay tuned. Yeah, so what's going on? Not a whole lot. Just got done working out. Uh, starting up a new series, the Mach 3 stuff. Have you seen that stuff? No, what is it? Um, so it's this guy that's in San Antonio, Mike Romatowski. And I saw it down the PGA show. It's like a bunch of like ropes and chains and all this kind of stuff. It's some BDSM stuff. Um, but uh, <laughs> but it's uh, just to help help create more speed. So I'm doing it with a couple of my juniors as, you know, we're doing like a four week trial to kind of see how it goes. Uh, I think you need that stuff for yourself too. A hundred percent. That's why I'm doing it with them for sure. What's your speed at now? 108 cruise. That's not bad though. No, I mean like one, you know, low one sixties fall speed. Um, I mean, I still get it out there pretty good. I mean, I want to get it though where I can cruise at ten. That's my goal. Yeah, I, I kind of understand you because I'm right around the same bark uh, mark right now. I think I'm like 107, and if I can cruise it, if I can get gamer speed, well, my gamer speed is probably at 110 because of the adrenaline when you're on the course and stuff. But right. But if my cruise, like if I could get cruise on the golf course to 12, yeah, that'd be different. It, yeah, it's flying. a just a huge difference there. It's because all kinds of courses always have those bunkers that you can't carry like right around that mark. Yep. I mean, like, right at that, like, 285 carry. Yeah, which I, can, I can't do that. I'm carrying it, like, 265, no. 270. That's what mine – mine's, like, 271, 272 carry. But, I mean, it'll be 305, but it'll be just a – Yeah, heater. see, the difference is in Quebec, because it's so lush over here, you're carrying it 265, but it's going, like, 270. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. See, we get – we haven't – shit, we hadn't had rain in, like, a month. I mean, the fairways – I played yesterday, even on, like, Zoysia fairways, mm-hmm. it balls running 25 yards, 30 yards. Yeah, dude, we cannot get rain for a month and it'll roll like 10 yards. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, I've actually hit dri- – like I'm a low-spinning driver golfer too. Like I, I, don't, I spin it like around 2,000, and I, can't, I literally have seen balls back up on the fairway with driver. Now, y'all's are all, it's bent grass fairways, isn't it? It's bent grass everywhere in Quebec, yeah. Yeah, I love that. There's nothing better than bent grass. Well, I mean, first of all, it's like the easiest grass to chip out of around the greens. So, I mean, if you have a bad short game in Quebec, like you're going to struggle. Outside of Zoysia that's sitting up, I mean, Ben. Yeah, like, Zoysia is so easy. Zoysia fairways are so easy. Yeah, I mean, you can hit it heavy and the ball's flying, <laughs> coming off like it's on a tee. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's so fun. Like in ours, we've got two courses that have Zoysia on ours, and they keep them super tight. So you can just yeah. hit nippers all day. It's funny because my course, my course, uh, Mystic is is bent grass, but if you play off it, it almost plays like Zoysia. I don't know why or what the superintendent does, but it, the fairway is like a, a spongy carpet that you, the club just bounces off of. It's literally impossible to hit the ball heavy. I know. I bet I could do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, trust me, I've seen I've seen some high handicappers do it. I mean, obviously, but you know, um, what course? What course are you teaching out of, anyways? I actually don't know if I've ever asked you that question. So I'm at a standalone facility. I'm part of Reynolds. So Reynolds, Lake Oconee, it used to be Reynolds Plantation. Like they used to have big break stuff here. And the, the old, uh, remember like the old match play? Like back, oh God, it was probably mid 90s. Okay. It was kind of like, it was like the original uh, World Golf Championship stuff. Okay. Um, okay they okay. used to have the before, You mean here. before they made it like a big thing? Yeah. So it was, it was the Accenture. But it was, um, but it was back like I mean like it was like Frank Navalo and Ernie L. So like they had qualifying for it in eight different regions around the world, and then the eight winners of those regions played Great Waters here. So um, 
Yeah, Taylor, I mean, first of all, uh, introduce, when did you get started in the game? I want you to introduce yourself a little bit because, um, I mean, everybody comes from a different background and I would love to know kind of how you got started in it. Yeah, so I come from a, uh, from a long line of golfers. Uh, my grandfather was a really accomplished player. Uh, he grew up, he grew up in, I mean, rural Mississippi, but played a lot of golf in Michigan, uh, up around Detroit. And he was a really good golfer. Uh, my dad was a pro for a while down in Sea Island, uh, at Sea Palms Golf Course down there when he got out of college for a few years. Um, my dad's still a really good golfer. He actually beat me a couple weeks ago. Um, how, how much did that annoy you? Yeah, he, Oh, it still frustrates me, but he's one of the best putters I've ever met in my life. He shot 67 and hit nine greens. And he, uh, I mean, he still gets it. He still gets it around really well. Um, mm -hmm. But I mean, they both got me into the game. I was a big baseball kid growing up. I grew up in, in Atlanta in the early nineties. And so the Atlanta Braves growing up, I wanted to be Tom Glavin. I wanted to be a pitcher. Mm -hmm. uh, but when I got to high school, I realized that being five foot, seven then and slow baseball probably wasn't going to be my thing <laughs> and so I, I switched to pretty much full just playing golf my freshman year pretty much of high school and went that route uh played a lot of golf uh junior golf and then uh got to play at the University of Georgia uh for two and a half years and then finished up at NC State it was uh, it was really cool playing college golf. I went more the you know the normal teacher route, a little bit different than how you went through it. Uh, you know, I played professionally after I got done, and after I donated enough money to the mini tours, I decided I'd get into teaching. <laughs> that's that's definitely more of the common route you'll see these days. <laughs> yeah. So what uh, what uh, made you decide that you couldn't make it? You were just funding the mini tours because you weren't doing well enough. I mean, I had, I started, I mean, I just had my own money. I saved up for a year, saved up 25,000 and it lasted me for two years, uh, just playing and, and going. I mean, I, you know, I was kind of breaking even ish besides yeah. the travel expenses, but I had a couple of events. We were playing the e-golf tour, uh, up in, in the Carolinas. And I look back now, it was pretty cool. The guys we were playing with, but it was 200 guys every week cutting to 60. And I had three straight weeks where I, my worst score was 70 and I missed all three cuts by a decent amount. I had, I think I was like seven under six under six under and I missed all three cuts. And I was like, I felt when I got done, I was like, I felt like I played pretty, pretty well, like really well. And I was like, and I'm not going to shoot 17, yeah. 18 under. And that was when I was kind of like, you know what, this is probably not my route. So who were, who were some of the guys that were on the tour that were competing against you? So in like 2009, 2010, it would have been Kevin Kisner. Uh, then like Tom Gillis. We had Tommy Ganey, Chris Kirk, Brendan Todd. Um, who else was out there then? Uh, goodness gracious. Beer Shanks. I mean, there were a lot of really good players playing that in the Hooters tour. Uh, between those, Ted Potter, uh, bunch of bunch of winners on the PGA Tour. <laughs> yeah, those are some studs there. So what? Um, it was, what was the first thing you did into transitioning to a coach? So the first thing I did was I worked at a golf course uh, just for a summer. I was the head pro at a golf course um, up in the North Georgia mountains, and realized that. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to sit in a golf shop. That was, that was not why I got into playing golf and sitting in behind a desk from eight to five in a golf shop was more frustrating than not playing golf at all. For sure. And so I reached out, I reached out to Jim McLean, who I've known uh, for, for a long time. I played junior golf with both of his sons growing up. And so I've had a relationship with him uh, for man since I was probably 12 or 13 <laughs> And reached out to him because I knew he had an academy in Miami and in Dallas, Texas. I reached out to him and said, hey, you know, y'all hiring any, any instructors? And he said, yeah. He's like, the way that works here is you start as an assistant. Usually takes about a year to 18 months to move up to be able to be a teacher. And uh, 
So I moved out to Dallas three weeks after that and, and got started. Wow. So you just made the jump right away. Yeah, I, I went, I was, I was either going to go into, you know, figure something out in real estate or sell insurance, do something like that. But that wasn't what I wanted to do. My passion's always been golf. Yeah. So you wanted to stay within the industry as much as possible. Mm -hmm. so were you, uh, do you remember the first ever lesson you gave? Were you nervous? The first, yes. The first lesson I gave uh, was part of my training and it's, kind of how you graduate. So we go through, you have to, you know, with Mr. McLean's system, you've got to read all the books, you have to do all the book work. And then at the end, you do a lot of filming of yourself talking and doing golf schools. And then part of the graduation is you've got to teach in front of the higher level instructors out there in Texas. And I remember the first lesson, it was, hey, you've got to go to the public side of the range, go ask somebody if they'd like a lesson for free. And I was like, well, okay. So I went over there and ended up, I didn't get to pick. My boss picked and he picked the worst golfer that was on the range, which is probably a good thing for me. Mm -hmm. um, and Where and there's like teach. super obvious issues kind of thing that are common. Yeah. I mean, it was, it, well, it was one where, you know, contact was, you know, if, if we got it airborne, it was going to be a good day. Right. So it was, it was one where, you know, that was probably, easier in hindsight for me then I'm like oh my gosh there's so many things that I can tell this guy <laughs> and um but I was very nervous because my whole thing I don't want to mess this person up even more um right. that was that was my whole thing and but with kind of how I learned how to teach with with Mr. McLean stuff is you know you just take it step by step hey let's let's start with the first thing first things first and you know, we got set up a little bit better and grip better and early takeaway better to where once we got there, the golf ball responded somewhat. Um, you know, the golf swing wasn't going to magically change, but we got contact to where, you know, ball was airborne and he was smiling. Which is all he wants at the end of the day. Exactly. Um, I have a follow-up question to that, actually, that I just thought of. What is your thoughts on – coaching bad golfers versus coaching good golfers in the sense of like, do you find one is easier than the other? Cause I have my own opinion. And I think my opinion differs from most people, but I would love to know what your thoughts are on like, depending on the skill level of the player, do you have a preference or do you think one is easier? Oh, I think teaching bad golfers is way easier. Okay. So it's, I think, I think I'm one of the few people who differs in that regard. I actually find it way more difficult than teaching a really good golfer. I think it's, it's to me that the, the the bad golfers you've got, especially if, if it's a bad golfer that truly wants to get better. Um, if it's just somebody who, Hey, look, man, I'm coming in for a band aid lesson and I'm going to go play golf and not actually practice it. Those are really hard because you yeah. give, end up giving the same lesson all the time. And uh, that, so I just, that I just, very frustrating. not to cut you off, but I just dropped a student recently because he has come and seen me four times over the course of a year and a half. And every single lesson I've given him has been identical. And it got yep. to the point where he messaged me again. And I'm like, look, dude, I'm not going to tell you any new information. You haven't practiced it whatsoever. Your swing keeps looking the exact same every time you come and see me. And you get better by the end of it, but you don't practice. So you revert right back to old habits. I'm like, so either go see someone else or, or, or don't take a lesson because you're not actually practicing what I'm telling you, you know? Yeah, those are, those are the toughest ones when, when a student, you know, comes to a lesson and it's almost their time to practice. Mm -hmm. and you're like that's that's not how this works um and that that can be frustrating but you know the 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 tough thing with higher level players is and it's something that mr mclean's always you know said from the beginning with me it's easier to mess them up um it's easier to mess up a really good player for by sure. giving them some some bad information and especially somebody who's playing for a living you don't yep. want to take you don't want to take their their paycheck away 100%. Um, and so it's, you know, you've definitely got to move it a little differently than you may with a, you know, a high handicap player. You can be a little bit more extreme, uh, with a high handicap player, maybe a tour player, you might start it by changing something you're doing in their short game to affect their, their full swing, whatever it might be. Um, and it depends on their comprehension too, but you know, tour players and many tour players and high level college players. I, I enjoy those lessons a lot because it makes me think a lot. Um, it's a different, it's a different way. Cause there's, you know, 
they've got their swing DNA. Yeah. That is, you know, especially somebody that's been playing, you know, like a, like what you did with Stephen Ames is really cool. I think it's really impressive and it's, it's really neat because he's swung a certain way for a really long time and made a lot of money doing it. Yeah. 20, <laughs> you know, 20, like, 25 years or something, 30 years that he's been I mean, swinging the same way. I mean, he's made a killing doing it and, you know, was a very, you know, really high in the world rankings for a very long time, never really in jeopardy of losing anything. And then for him, you know, I mean, it, it's part, it's, it's a lot him too wanting to make a change. Um, yeah. want, you know, seeing the value in making a change at that point in his career, which is pretty, pretty cool. That's very self-aware, which is really neat. So I have, I have a couple of opinions that I'll, will differ from you and I'll, I'll say them now and then I would love to hear your feedback on it too. Mm-hmm. So the reason I find better players, the lessons easier is not so much because of the information that has to be given within the lesson or the risk involved. It's because there is one complete extra variable that you don't have to think about with better players, which is that they know how to practice for the most part. So when I'm giving these lessons to these better players, I know that I don't have to be so hard on them between lessons, making sure they're doing things the right way or during the lesson, making sure they're actually going to slow things down and exaggerate whatever we're talking about because they've gone through that before. They've gotten to a point where they're obviously at a really high level means they had to have practiced an enormous amount to get there. No one magically gets really good at the game of golf. It just doesn't happen. And so there's like this whole variable of making sure their practice is like up to standard. That obviously could be better with some tour players, but it's never terrible, right? It's either like good or great. Whereas with the beginner golfer, you know, there's obviously going to be a lot of low-hanging fruit there in terms of what you can do to make them better. I mean, you know, wide-open club faces, their shaft is moving really poorly, their setup probably sucks. Like, there's a lot of things that, you know, like I said, are really easy to change. Don't get me wrong. I mean, the information is right in front of you sometimes with these really poor golfers, right? But there's this extra variable there of making sure that they have to practice the right way, that they're actually going to listen to you, that they're going to put the time in between sessions. And that's like a whole thing that you don't have to worry about or exert mental energy on when you're dealing with better players. For the most part, obviously you still are going to, but not nearly to the same level in my opinion that you will with a beginner. And I guess I'd, I'd agree with that. Yeah. I'd so definitely agree with that. So because I guess with, and this is completely my own personal experience that I feel like I've gotten to a point where I'm confident teaching any player. Like it really doesn't matter to me whether the guy comes to me and it's a Stephen Ames or a guy comes to me and he's a 30 handicap. I'll feel very confident in what I'm going to tell this player. Right. Mm -hmm. And I like to think that I've proven myself to some degree with a lot of these guys. And so because of that, like dealing with a better player, I don't feel that extra weight on my shoulders of the risk of their golf swing, because I feel like I'm pretty confident in what I'm doing. That for me, whether that's a low-hanging fruit, like, yeah, the guy's coming in and he's got no depth to his hand path or his wrist is 100 degrees cupped with a neutral grip and his face is wide open. Like, yeah, that's easy stuff to change. Don't get me wrong. But is that player going to commit to that change? That's a lot of work you have to put in as a coach. Whereas when you're dealing with a better player, the guy might come in and you might tell him something – you know, that might be a little more of a micro adjustment, right? It's not visible necessarily to the naked eye. You might pick up some stuff on, on the launch monitor, but at least you'll know that once that player has the understanding of why they need to make that adjustment, there's not so much, uh, like there's not, you're not taxing your body mentally and physically to get that player to do that change because you know, they're going to put the work in and they know how to put the work in. So I feel like that's kind of where for me, it differs teaching a better player versus a, a worse player where I guess it's kind of, it, it goes both ways. Look, look, don't get me wrong. With better players, I mean, sorry, with worse players, their expectations probably aren't as high either coming into it. Like these guys just want to get, like you said, get the ball airborne or he just wants Mm -hmm. to stop slicing the ball. He can hook the ball all day. He just wants to stop slicing it. I mean, you can really exaggerate that easily for him and get him to curve the ball the other way and he'll be super happy. You know, so like getting a, a worse player satisfied with the lesson, I think is a lot easier but I think the overall Correct. situation and like a lesson to lesson kind of scenario, I think I, personally, I've always found it was easier with better players. I, no, I, I would, I mean, you know, you, you asked which one's an easier one. If it's a one-off lesson, the you know, I think the, the, yeah. I mean yeah. like over time, over, you know, a, a long amount of time, if you're, you know, not giving just a one-off lesson, like I've, I've stopped kind of, doing that in person a little bit more where I put people on packages because I, you know, I, Hey, look, we want to do it over this time. 
and giving us this amount of time will, you know, will make sure we're doing the change the right way, not just a band-aid fix. Like, I mean, it shows, I'm not a it, big band-aid guy. It also shows a sense of commitment from the player. Like if For sure. A, a five or ten lesson package with you or what, however you structure your packages. Like, at least you'll know, like, look, if the guy's giving you five hours of his time, he wants to get better at the game. He's not coming in for you to tell him, hey, I'm slicing. Do I just strengthen my grip and walk out of here kind of thing, you know? <laughs> right. And it's they're invested monetarily. I mean, yeah, that's a big driver. You know, it's like if, if they've committed that money, they're going to, you know, want to see progress. So they're going to have a, a better reason to get better. Well, it's okay. So uh, it's funny you say that because to me, the hardest people to teach are friends and family. And hundred oh, percent. I think the biggest reason for that is without a doubt, the fact that there is no monetary kind of compensation being done. So, you know, your brother comes in or your friend comes in or somebody comes in and wants to get better at the game. It's really hard to be an authority figure there during the lesson and get them to commit to what they're doing. Because they're not paying for the lesson, they're not going to take it nearly as seriously for as a starting point. But then also there's this whole factor of like, you know, they might answer back to you in a way that a student would never answer back to their coach, right? Like you'll tell a, a student who's struggling with something in front of you, like a stranger, and like he might feel very uncomfortable with it, but like he'll keep trying and pushing through it. Whereas like a family member might just be like, oh, this is too uncomfortable. Like I don't want to do it. It's like, yeah, but right. I see if you were paying for this lesson, you would never say that to me right now, you know? A hundred percent. Those are definitely the toughest, toughest lessons um, for sure. Dang, I can't believe you threw you under the bus like that, Brandon. That's unbelievable. Yeah, Brandon's laughing. <laughs> Brandon's laughing. I, will say th- I will say this about Brandon. Of all the friends and family, he's by far the most committed student I have. Like when, oh, I mean, when Brandon first started working with me uh, in 2017-ish, 18, uh, I mean, like he was like barely breaking 100. Like he was shooting like high 90s and he – has been regularly posting up scores in the low eighties for the last um, about six months. So he's been, he's been actually committed and he's been getting a lot better, which is, which is cool. No. Yeah. That's, he was showing me some stuff. Uh, I guess it was probably April or May, like the stuff that y'all had done and how much better his golf game had gotten. So he obviously is wanting to get better. Um, but yeah, yeah but, I mean, I think friends he sees, and family are he, definitely tough. He see, keep in mind, Brandon sees it all day. Like he's around me here when I'm right. coaching. So like he's, he's, he's soaking up that information, whether he knows it like intentionally or not, he's around it, you know? Yep. So, um, actually that's a good, that's a good segue for Brandon because I wanted to talk about that. You, uh, you had a meetup with my brother who is the manager of our company and like runs everything behind the scenes. Um, and you guys spoke about some social media stuff. I just wanted to get your opinion. First of all, on why you felt it was necessary to meet with him, uh, to talk about your social media page. Um, how much better it's gotten, I guess, since you guys had that meeting and what you guys kind of discussed, at least briefly, just kind of in a nutshell. Yeah, so the reason I wanted to reach out to Brandon is, you know, your social media, the Not Giovanni Golf, and then your personal, well, your teaching page mm-hmm. um, is so well known and, you know, drives a lot of your online business. I mean, that, sure. we Instagram definitely drives it the most. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, during all this, COVID and all this stuff, I, I had to shift a lot more online. Even the people that I taught day to day all the time, I moved to a lot of online stuff. And so I knew that in order to grow my business that way, um, I needed to have a better, better presence on social media. And, you know, my friends and stuff like that, man, you've got 6,000 followers, 7,000 followers. That's pretty cool. I'm like, yeah, yeah that's pretty cool. And then I'm looking at guys like yourself or or Gigi and, you know, all these people that have a huge following mm-hmm. and can influence a lot of people. Uh, I, I wanted to reach out to Brandon after we had spoken, I guess it was a skillist, a skillist session where you had, you had spoken to it. You and Brandon spoke to yeah, a lot we did of people a, on there. We did a webinar, I think in mm-hmm. I say March or February or something like that, the beginning of the year. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, we, you helped set it up with Brandon for me and, you know, just changing a few things on how my, how my page looked. And, uh, one was making my audio way better. <laughs> that was a, that was a big, big thing that we and had you know, to do. And you know, it's sad. I see, I'm sure now you pick up on it right away when you go to someone's page and you hear the audio is like really poorly done and there's wind mm-hmm. in the background. You're like, how does a guy, like a guy's trying to learn from your video and already doesn't necessarily know the information you're about to tell him how can you expect him to stay committed and want to keep listening when the audio is so bad and there's wind in the background and everything? Like, it's just, 
the, the person's going to jump off ship, you know, and go to someone mm -hmm. else's page immediately. And I didn't really notice it a ton before until uh, I filmed my first one with that, with that app, with the Filmic app. And, yeah. um, and I filmed my first one and I put it on Instagram and you actually sent me a message too. Hey, finally, you've got some good audio. And then I just <laughs> listened to them back to back. The one that I posted the day before and that one, and I'm like, God, that guy before just sounds like a chop. And yeah. now, now you sound professional. It's so much better. And it's, it's made a big difference. I mean, also in just like my live lessons, like I'll put those things on skillets with my players and, you know, pop my AirPods in and, and do the lesson that way. And it just helps to convey the message so much clearer. But, you know, since then, I've, what was it? What were you going to say? No, I was just going to say, I, I also think it probably helps quite a bit with your online lessons too, of making mm -hmm. sure like the information that's being delivered to these people um, on that screen is way clear and the message is going to come across a little easier. For sure. And then even on my, on my analysis portion of the, the online lessons, I have a microphone that's plugged into my iPad. So it's even better there. Um, really, really good stuff. But, you know, it's, it's made it much better and, you know, made Brandon help me look at it as the Instagram part being, being a business in and of itself. Mm -hmm. to where I've got times planned out every, every Sunday I plan out what I'm going to put out for that week. And so that I already have a plan. So I'm not just kind of winging it day by day or anything like that. I've got a plan for what I'm going to put up. And there's obviously always something like if a lesson comes in and there's a, you know, a crazy change, something that's really cool. I'm going to put that up, but for you know, sure. my niche, the niche that I've kind of found and that I found pretty quickly um, talking with Brandon was, you know, some where I put up a, you know, a, you'll see a lot of the red X's and the green check marks and things like that. It's, it's spoken to an audience that I didn't have before. Um, mm -hmm. You know, where before I just posted swings of my players. Mostly that's pretty much all I did. And there's a yeah. lot of people that do that. And you, you do that a lot, which is great, but you also have a lot of content that you put out as well as, you know, helping people and you explain it really well when you, when you do have the swings up there. But, you know, my way that I've grown mine is, you know, more, the Instagram page is probably geared more towards the mid to high handicapper for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, and which that's is where, a, which you know, by most the way golfers is, are. is a majority of golfers. Yeah. So right. I mean, most golfers it, are there. If anything, I would say that mine are clearly more specific and, you know, oftentimes cater to the better player, but that's just where my preference is. It doesn't necessarily mean that's the only way right. to do it. Right. And the most of the people I teach in person, I mean, we've got almost 4,000 members here and most of the membership is mid to high handicap. So that's what I teach a lot anyways, as far mm -hmm. as my members go. No, I do get my, I have my elite juniors and college players and a few mini tour pros that I have right now. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it's just helped me reach a bigger audience, which for me, I mean, that's my goal in golf is just to help as many people as I can. And growing the Instagram and being able to reach more people in a week just, just helps me to, to do what I want to do, help people get better. That's, uh, I mean, look, at the end of the day, you always have to cater where your page is to what, what you want to do, right? If your goal is to reach a lot of people, then, I mean, you're, you're on the right track. You've already what doubled or tripled in size since you you've been spending some time on your social media stuff. Yeah. I mean, I've grown it by, it's grown by about 10,000 followers since I don't know when Brandon and I talked in, into March, maybe beginning of April. So Brandon it's grown, just, it's grown a lot. Brandon <laughs> just did a mini fist pump to the sky. Don't worry. Yeah. I mean, and I, and I still send him messages on Instagram a lot, like showing him like, I can't believe the reach that some of these posts get just, just organically. Um, yeah. some of them are just crazy town, how much they've exploded where, you know, and if February, if I put up a post and it got 200, 200 likes and, you know, a hundred shares, it was really cool. Um, now it's, you know, there's getting, you know, thousands and thousands of likes and saves and shares and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it just, it, I'm like, whoa, this, this information, whether it, might not even be better information, same information a lot of times that I was putting out before, but right. just presented so much better. <laughs> Which is the, all the difference when it comes to social media. It's crazy. All right, dude, here's a, here's a golf question for you. Um, in your opinion, I think you're a really good coach, so I would love to know what your thoughts are on this. What do you think is one thing that 
everybody does well who plays golf at a high level. Is there something that stands out to you? We're talking like tour player level. Yeah, let's say a golfer who is either like an elite amateur or a college kid or a, a tour player. Is there something that you see pretty consistently amongst them that they all do well? There might not be an answer uh, to this there, for you, by the way. I mean, I mean, very subjective. There's a couple things that I see that they do really well. One, they they know how far they hit it. Mm-hmm. They control distance very well. Which is amazing um, that most recreational golfers really are bad at knowing how far they hit it. Have no idea. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, a tour player, like, they'll come in here and they'll hit balls and they'll hit one and they'll miss it a little and they'll call the number out before it even pops up. They're like, that's set 178 instead of 82. Yeah. And they know it as soon as they hit it. And their control of the club face is way better than most people. I mean, that's why you see a dispersion, you know, if we were to take a 10 handicap and a tour pro, the dispersion is going to be way different. Um, They just, they control their face really well and they control distance really well. I mean, at at an elite level. Is that what you'd say, you would say is the biggest difference in your opinion between a guy who's like a 15 handicap and a guy who gets to single digits is his lack of face control? It's a big part of it because path can, path can vary a little bit here and there. And if your face is still, you know, somewhat similar, I mean, face is never going to be exactly the same every time, but if you can keep it within, you know, a half a degree, it's pretty impressive. And you see those guys on tour controlling, controlling that in their low point really impressively. Yeah. I try to clarify that too with people like the only like outside of extremes, there's no consistency in club path data that I receive no. from a tour player no. whatsoever. I mean, there are guys that swing at minus three. There are guys that swing at plus four. I mean, right. it never really gets more than that. Like I, I very rarely have seen an elite golfer play uh, with a club path. That's more than like three to three and a half degrees either way. I think beyond right. that, it gets too extreme and you start playing too much curve with the lower lofted clubs. Um, but the numbers will vary so greatly. Like it's not as though everybody is swinging from the inside or everyone's swinging no. from the yeah. Like people have this idea like, oh, if you want to play really well at a high level, like everyone's got to fade the ball. It's like, no, that's not true. But you also, not everybody has to draw the ball. I mean, it, I think right. everybody has a certain DNA in their swing and I think that it's important to try to retain that as much as possible. But to say that there's a consistency with club path, I mean, that's super false. No, that's, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, like we were talking about club face, the, the relationship between face and path is most important is, is unbelievable. Right. I mean, like that's yeah. what tour pros are. So good. if they hit their shot, like, I mean, and most, you know, tour guys, I mean, I don't have nearly as much experience as you, but I've been around enough of them and I caddied on the tour and caddied yeah. on the web for a long time. And, you know, those guys, they, if they are a fader of the golf ball, they're going to fade it until they need to break glass in case of emergency. Dude, or if they're a drawer, they're typically going to draw it until they can't. It is crazy how often I get a player come to me who's like a 15 or 20 handicap, and he goes, I really want to learn to work the ball both ways. And the first thing I tell them is like, why? If you saw the amount of tour players I work with that literally could not curve the ball the other way and choose not to, you would be amazed. Like, there is mm-hmm. no reason that you – because everybody – like, I'm a big believer that everybody is going to have one shot shape that is stock. It's really comfortable. It's natural. You don't have to think about it too much. That ball is going to curve in that direction. And then there's always going to be the other curve that's going to be very manufactured. It's something mm-hmm. that's not very comfortable to them. It's not in their DNA. It's kind of forced and manipulated. And the odds of you hitting it closer with that type of manipulation that's not very comfortable to you, even if it's the right curvature for the layout of the hole or the flag or whatever, the odds of you hitting that closer than just playing your shot shape, even if it might not necessarily get to the flag, is you'll, you'll never do it better with consistency. You no. might pull it off once or twice, but over a period of 10 or 20 or 50 balls, you ain't going to get it closer more often than not. So you're losing strokes at the end of the day doing that. So why would you want to do it? For sure. I mean, like that, I get that one a lot, you know, Hey, I want to, I want to learn how to hit it both ways when I'm playing. And I, I do the same thing. I'm like, why would you want to do that? I don't, I was like, I, I mean, for them, you know, like if I go out and play with them, I'm probably one of the better players they've played with mm-hmm. and they see me and I hit draws all, all day. day. I mean, like <laughs> I'm going to draw I've, all I've, like, that's yeah. all I hit. And 
I like I might hit one like a fade for me is pretty much a straight ball. And the only time I'm going to hit that is if I've got like a hard right left wind and I've got to try and hold it a little bit. I don't want it running on it. As you're saying that, Brandon's looking at me and he's like, yeah, Shaheen does not fade the ball. <laughs> like I, I exclusively no, my, draw too. So I, I understand where you're coming from. Like I, 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 if, if I try to play it, a it's fade, a really bad swing. Yeah, honestly, it would, for me, if I'm fading it, it's likely a push cut. It's likely a push cut where I came out of it and I, it's not coming back. No, mine's coming up short, right? If I hit, if my ball is curving, right? It's not going to be a very good shot. It's usually one that has a four letter word coming after it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, and so we'll go out and play and I'm like, you know, I was like, if I had, you know, gun to my head, 18th hole, I've got a one shot lead and I got to make par and their flag is, I don't care where it is on the green. This ball is curving right to left. I can tell you that right now. Mm -hmm. It's, it's always going to happen. And they look at me, they're like, well, why would you do that if the flag's on the right and something like that? I'm like, well, because I know I can hit it all day. I can mm -hmm. do it no matter what. If a TV camera's sitting right behind me or I'm just playing with my buddies, I know I can do it without thinking about it. And so I'm going to hit that shot. Even if it leaves me 30 feet, I know I can two-putt from 30 I mean, that's feet. Kind of, that's kind of the whole idea of, like, strokes gained in decades with Scott mm -hmm. Fawcett and all that stuff is, like right. – you know, I would rather hit it – if I can pull it off nine times out of ten to where I would guarantee myself 25 feet versus once I'll be five feet but the other nine times I'll be short-sighted, like why would I ever want to try to play that fade to the right pin? Right. I mean, yeah, that's – I've done a lot of stuff with Scott, you know, being in Dallas for as long as I was. Mm -hmm. um, we, we did a lot of work, uh, you know, before he was part of Course Kings for a little while and stuff like that. And we – you know, exclusively, all right, look, Taylor, you're going to hit this draw and you just pick this shot pattern because it's, you know, a, a shotgun blast, the way that the balls land on the green or any, any shot, you're going to increase your chances of par or better by picking this spot and just hitting your one shot. And you might make a few less birdies, but you're going to make way less doubles and is, way less soft bogeys. Which at the end of the day means you're still gaining strokes. Correct. I mean, like you, you hit it, you know, and, 50% of the time, if it's on the flags in the left side of your dispersion pattern, you're going to be close. And if it's on the right, you actually, you know, hit one straight, then turn over for me, then it's going to be close there too. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, like the way I look at it was I always enjoyed watching Tom Lehman play a lot because he was a drawer like me. And, but he yeah. never, he very rarely ever missed it left. Very rarely over curved it a lot. Mm -hmm. And except for maybe the, 17th hole of the u.s open at congressional <laughs> um but you know like he was he was one that i, I mean i've sat there and watched him hit balls in the range in texas because his son played at tcu for a while and i mean there are these beautiful shots and i always thought of him as a big curver of the golf ball it might have moved two three yards it wasn't moving much and i got to see bruce litsky play the exact opposite ball a lot uh because he and mr mclean were good friends and his ball didn't curve that much not with the way golf balls were in the last 10 12 years yeah. now back in the late 80s early 90s it probably curved a lot more because the ball spun a lot more but um you know it, it's just those guys are just it's impressive how much they just hit one shot and then they're you know the decade stuff i i preach it to especially my juniors and college kids so i'm like look this is what a tour player does without thinking about it they they just do it you know like they them and their caddy are figuring out the best place to where they can make the easiest par and by making the easiest par they're giving themselves a good chance at birdie yep you know if, if, if you can make the easiest par possible well okay sometimes that's 15 feet well that's still a very legitimate chance at birdie they're not always flag hunting it's a very it very a wise way of putting it uh um, that's i mean i i love it dude i'm i'm fully on board I have a – so here's a follow-up since you mentioned kind of juniors and, and college kids. Do you, uh, do you prioritize things differently when you're working with juniors? As far as? Uh, let's say just uh, in general, in terms of improvement at the game of golf, no matter what that may be. A lot more on course and playing. Um, making sure they can – you know, I want them – I'm not as concerned with a 12-year-old the technique as much because they're just not quite strong enough sometimes. Right. to do certain things. But if we can hit the middle of the club face, I do a lot of stuff with that and a ton of short game because you're going to have days, especially, you know, younger kids, they're growing, their bodies change a ton. I mean, I've had one kid who grew like eight inches in the last year. So his, his spatial awareness is 
a little off. Like it's just right. his body's different. Mm -hmm. So in order to, you know, combat that, I do a ton of short game work with them, hitting different shots, which will help them with different, you know, kind of working up and down the ladder as far as full shots go, being able to hit these different, different windows of height. And then a lot of on course, hey, look, let's be the best at thinking our way around the golf course. Let's be better than all of these other kids. You learn this stuff now, you're way ahead of the game. If we can have you thinking like a tour pro, if you can somewhat execute the shot, right? I mean, there's, if somebody's shooting 100, it, the course management is a little different how you do it. But um, if we can somewhat execute a shot, then let's be the best thinker out there. Cause I mean, let's be real. Tiger's the best at that, that we've that I've seen personally, I didn't get to see Jack play in his prime, but Tiger probably the most conservative player on the PGA tour. I mean, and, he's and, and super it's conservative. A, and I think it always surprised people to hear that, but like the facts fully back it up. I mean, he won a British open hitting one driver. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, he'll take, or like a couple years ago at, at Innisbrook down in, down in Tampa. I mean, he hit two he iron. Up with two team. iron. Yeah. Didn't he? On because the he knew his, he, he knew his birdie. chances of hitting a six iron close from the fairway for him were yeah. higher than hitting a nine iron or wedge out of the rough. That was uh, that flag. That was uh, uh, Valspar. Yep. Yeah, when he needed birdie to that back right flag, and and it's know, amazing that people all questioned why he would hit two two iron off the tee. It's like because if he plays this hole ten times and hits two iron off the tee ten times, he will still make more birdies than if he hits driver off the tee. Like people just 100%. don't understand. People just don't understand that. Yeah, he and might it make it. How good he'll make an it, iron player he is. Like in that birdie that he'll make with the driver off the tee, he'll make an easier birdie, but he won't make them as often in the long run as he would with the two iron. So it's just a smarter play. Right, and he's also, I mean, probably the greatest iron player. That's one of the greatest iron players that's ever lived. One of. Uh, I mean, he's the best. I mean, he's, in my opinion, he's the best. I mean, dude, he's never. Dude, I think he's never had a. His he's worst, never had a year outside the top five in strokes gained approach. I think sixth. I think one year he finished sixth, and every other year he's been top five. I mean, it's it's absolutely bananas. Even this last week at the Memorial, he was he was way up there in strokes gained approach throughout yeah, the week. That's his better I mean, part. And he didn't have a good week either. That's the best part. No. I mean, he had a terrible week. I mean, he didn't putt it great and didn't, didn't do some things differently. But, you know, he – I mean, he's the best. It's a different sound watching him hit a – hit an iron it's a different look it's pretty it's pretty cool um but yeah i mean it's like juniors if we can get them thinking you know less emotionally mm -hmm. and more you know a little bit more tactfully through the golf course you know there's you're gonna get mad i don't care if somebody gets mad but not make a decision based on emotion hey i just made bogey i've got to make birdie well that's ridiculous <laughs> let's <laughs> Let's let's just hit this next shot the best we can. You don't have to say let's that's pick the best target. I think that's everybody. Everybody yeah. under under a ten handicap. I think everyone thinks that way. For sure, and I mean, and really, you know, if we make bogey, I mean, tour players make bogeys. It's not a bit. I mean, it happens. It's not a big deal. Tour players get real mad when they make dub, but you know, like it. It's one of those things where it's not. They know the long game, the long run is going to be better. If hey, look, if I just hit this shot the best that I can and pick the best target I can, it's going to increase my chances of doing something well. Right. I, uh, I, I agree, dude. I totally agree. All right, man. I want to end with two questions that are not so technical. Sure. I have a feeling what your first one's going to be, but I'll ask it anyways. Who would be in your, <laughs> um, who would be in your dream foursome? You being included in that, obviously. You know, I had this conversation the other day, so I've got two. I've got two different ones, if that's all right. I know it's kind of a... No, I, I, would imagine, I would imagine one involves family and one doesn't. Right. So one of them would be my dad, my grandfather, and Bobby Jones. Okay, so I, I, had, I had a feeling your dad and your grandfather would be pretty much a lock right. at that point. And I grew up at East Lake in Atlanta where Bobby Jones grew up. Um, that's where I, I grew up learning the game. So that would be one for me is really cool. That was Bobby Jones was always the guy that you know we looked at, even though he went to Georgia Tech and I went to Georgia. But... You know, it's, he, uh, that would be one of them. And then my other one, just like a pure golf foursome, would be Tiger, Jack, and Bobby Jones. Damn, Bobby Jones twice, eh? Yep. I'm impressed. That's a, that's a good response. Actually, I don't think I've ever gotten a Bobby Jones answer in any of the times I've asked that question. Yeah, he's my, he's my favorite. He, he was the one that I wanted to be like growing up. 
Fair, fair answer. And uh, the second question is, if you could go back in time and re-watch any tournament, which one would you watch? Ooh, man. This is a question, one, that, one, this is a question one, that always fucks with people. <laughs> ones that I've been alive for? No, not necessarily. Just a, a tournament you would like to see that have taken place. There's a man. lot of choices. That's a lot of choices. Um, or let's say come up with like three answers of the tournaments you would like to see so that you don't have to kind of full force yourself on just one. Okay, if I could go back, I mean, 86 Masters. Fair. Um, Jack Nicholas. A lot of – yeah, I can't watch the 95 or 96 Masters when Faldo won. 95, 96, that one bothers me because Greg Norman was my favorite then. Um, I can't watch that. If I had one I could never watch again, that would be it. That would be the one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that would be the one. Uh, Henrik Stenson, Phil at the British. Wow, that's the first time I get that answer. Because it was just – it that was absolutely just impressive. Yeah. It, was, Banana, it was impressive. Bananas, how much they separated themselves. It was unbelievable just the – I mean, how much both of them mastered it. I mean, Phil would have won any golf tournament ever if Henrik hadn't been there. Mm -hmm. And – uh, three. Hmm. I'm I think those are probably my two. Those are your two, eh? You mm -hmm. wouldn't choose anything that involves Tiger getting a W? No. I've watched them all. I mean, I've, shoot, I've seen them so many times, I think. I think that's what yeah. it is. You know, like I've seen yeah, most like of you, those. Yeah, like you, would, so want go, you want, would want to go back and watch something that hasn't a, been done yet. A big pick would probably be the 2000 US Open at Pebble. I mean, that's just domination. But, I think I think that would be the only Tiger win I would want to see in person because I would just want to see I mean, how much better that ball striking was that week, like actually in front of me. That one in person would be really impressive. Or really, I don't know, one of Tiger's USAM wins. Because he was the down one, the, in all of them. He the was one, losing in all of them with Yeah, but the one, the one that he like came back massively, there was one of them, I think it was against Steve Scott. Yeah, Pumpkin Ridge, I think, maybe. Yeah, he was down quite a bit, no? And he came back like crazy on that one? Yeah. Yeah, that one. I mean, the, I mean, winning six straight USGA events is just <laughs> insane. I mean, just insane. Like, that, that can't be done. <laughs> and it did. It happened. Yeah, that's, uh, that's fair. You know, it's funny. The first tournament I thought of when I said, would you go back and watch anything? I think for me would be like something super old school, like the Francis we met um, US Open as an amateur. Yeah, that would be that would be really cool. Because I, I would like pick something like Mike Weir winning in winning in Augusta or something. So something this, Canadian. Is, this is going to be really not <laughs> not a popular opinion amongst Canadians. But like, I don't care to see Canadians do well in golf. Like, I'm much more interested in seeing my own students do well than saying yeah, that's like the Canadian won. I th I don't know that's what it fair. is, but like, I think just there's such a heavy influence of hockey in this area that like, it's sad to say, but Canadian golf isn't very big, right? So. Like now, for the first time ever, I think there's four guys in the top 100 that are Canadian in the world ranking. Um, Who's that? Mackenzie? Uh, Mackenzie Hughes. Um, Is Hadwin still in the top 100? Yeah, Adam Hadwin. I think Nick Taylor and one other guy. I'm not 100% sure. The fact that I can't even answer that question for you kind of proves my point, unfortunately. But Now, if you had um, one, hockey, one hockey game that you could watch – Ever. Oh, that What's would be, be that would be probably the '93 Stanley Cup run. I think their last win. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, Montreal's last win because they snuck into the playoffs in like eighth place, and kind of like LA in 2012, they shouldn't have been there, and they kind of snuck in, and then they went on a crazy streak, and it's their last win, so it would be nice to see. But, um. Yeah, dude, I can come up with tournaments pretty much all day, but honestly, I, there's just too many to choose from, even in golf. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you were talking about kind of Phil, Phil and Henrik. One last, one last question for, for you here. What, uh, what was your thought on Phil putting from 80 yards out at the Memorial? <laughs> I mean, I guess that laugh kind of just answers it, but um, I, I mean, was, I think it was ridiculous. If you want my completely honest opinion, I, I think it was. Me personally, when I saw it, I think he's I trying to make a statement. I think he's trying to make a statement. 100% doing anything else. 100%. Then he laid up on 16. And it was one where I think, you know, I, I could see it happening to where it's not that bad of a play, but putter's not the right play. Yeah. I mean, if it, if it had been a 
hybrid or something like that where the ball can get a little more on top of the turf and do something like that, okay, cool, fine. And that's one of the few holes that, at at Muirfield that you can actually run the ball up on. Um, but I think it was more of a – it was more of a, a statement to how he felt the golf course was. That's, that was the first thing I thought of too. Everyone was freaking out over it. I was like, honestly, it had nothing to do with the hole and everything to do with Phil just wanting to say something without saying it. Yeah. Yeah. All right, dude. Well, that's, uh, that's good. We'll leave it at that. Cause I think we can ramble on about, about that stuff for a long time too, but, uh, <laughs> let's, let's leave the politics aside and just talk some fun stuff. But, uh, yeah, dude, I appreciate you having, having you on, man. It's uh, been a long time coming. Obviously we've been, no, waiting, thanks for having me. We've been waiting for this for a while, but, um, yeah, dude, I love seeing you killing it right now. And, uh, you know, it's only a matter of time where your your lesson book is going to be so filled filled up. You're going to be charging twice the amount soon. That's the goal, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then maybe one day I'll get to travel around on tour again. We'll see. <laughs> well, if you enjoy traveling, we'll that's that's totally your call, right? Yeah, we just, we'll see when when we're actually able to travel. My wife won't let me go anywhere right now. She's she's the boss. So. Well, I don't think anybody needs to go anywhere right now with what's going on. So no, let's, let's just leave it at that. No. All right, dude. Well, uh, I appreciate it, man. My pleasure, dude. That was that was fun. Yep. Let me know if you need anything, and I'll probably send you some swing videos of your of your student here in the next few days. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> All right, appreciate dude, it, buddy. Care. Thanks. So that was the episode with my buddy Taylor. Just some quick notes here to close. Uh, we are going to be changing all of our contests. They will no longer be running on the Shkeen Golf Instagram page. They're going to be on our Academy page. So if you don't follow that page yet, go and do so now. Uh, that's where we always do like caption contests and giveaways and things like that uh, for lessons and a whole bunch of merch. Uh, that's where we'll be running them. Also, uh, you know, as always, if you guys have any recommendations for guests, feel free to let us know if there's somebody who maybe we haven't heard of or somebody that hasn't been on our podcast yet that you would like to have on. Uh, you can always DM us or email us and we would be happy to uh, get in touch with them and get them on the show. Uh, you know, the reason why we took a little bit of a break was to get another nice little guest list going. So uh, we have a wide range of people coming on. We also have a new sponsor coming shortly. Uh, can't speak about that just yet, but that would be really cool. And uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. So, uh, yeah, we'll see you guys next week.